This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. I'll start with a story tonight. A lifetime ago, I was in Bolivia. We were on a bus going towards La Paz. It was crowded and I was standing up. Suddenly, we came to a checkpoint. A well-padded woman immediately gave me her seat and then piled bolts of cloth from under her skirts onto my lap. They were up to my chin. Then the police got on. Turista, turista, she yelled, pointing at me. And then a man at the back started shouting, I haven't got anything, I haven't got anything. And the police rushed back to him. They pushed him about and he rolled up his sleeves to reveal about five watches up his arm. And they got off then, each with a new watch. Then the woman told me to give back her seat and she reclaimed the valuable material she'd sell in the market later. Velvet and brocade, expensive material. I think that's what Australia is going to do at the Glasgow Climate Meeting in November. One person will be there calling, I haven't got anything, I haven't got anything, we're getting our local emissions down, our domestic emissions are fine, we're cancelling coal-fired power plants. But the real game is the ongoing diplomatic work and energetic efforts to undermine decarbonisation and we are all out to protect our coal and gas export for decades. The climate action groups we'll hear from tonight are Get Up with Professor Will Steffen, Greenpeace with CEO David Ritter, and Extinction Rebellion Canberra with rebels just out of jail for their duty of care action. But before that, here's Richard Dennis, economist from the Australia Institute. We know that when Prime Minister Morrison has gone to Bangladesh, has gone to Vietnam, and other ministers have gone to Southeast Asia, in their speaking pack, in their notes that they read on the plane, are the importance of flogging our coal to these countries. And this is in recent years. This is the speaking notes for our prime ministerial and ministerial visits. It's written there, make sure you talk up coal. We see Bangladesh as as a growing coal market for us. So, be, so again, even understand that Australia saying or Morrison's refusal to say net zero isn't just pandering to the Nats. That is absolutely part of it. But it's part of our foreign policy because we don't want Bangladesh to commit to net zero. We don't want Vietnam to commit to net zero. We don't want Sri Lanka to commit to net zero. We want to sell them coal and oil and gas. So part of our foreign policy is to actually take the diplomatic pain that's being meted out at the moment so that it's us that's copying pressure from Europe. It's us that's copying pressure from the US, leaving those Southeast Asian countries relatively unscathed. We're taking the load for them. It's not So, yep, Barnaby Joyce has got a role in it. You bet. But, boy, it's worse than that. Australia, according to Dennis, has no intention of making the transition from fossil fuels. The ALP this week joined the government in approving new subsidies for piping out Beetaloo Basin gas for export. If you ring up or email your MP, as so many groups are asking you to do, tell them you see their double game. The EU and USA might be shifting in climate policy, And we might go to Glasgow saying we will get our domestic emissions down. But really, we are wrecking the global effort, actively lobbying countries to buy more coal and gas. And we are not a small player. 
to back up my comments, please read the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. It's called Feeling the Heat, Australia Under Climate Pressure. Many excellent articles in that detailing what I've just said. But there are two positive signs this week. Denmark and Costa Rica are forging an alliance to end oil and gas production. It's called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. New Zealand is interested and has already banned new offshore oil and France and Spain will ban fossil fuel exploration by 2040. It will be launched in Glasgow. I know the big players like Saudi Arabia and Australia will not be joining up quickly, but that's where you can pressure them to join. The second good sign is from Sydney. The city of Sydney has signed up to the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's a global treaty. And Lord Mayor Clovermore called on our federal and state government to phase out and end the production of fossil fuels in an equitable way. We are joined by Barcelona, Los Angeles, Toronto and ACT. You can ask your state government, your local council, your local big business to join this non-proliferation treaty for fossil fuels. But now let's drill down into the United Nations IPCC report with Professor Will Steffen. My name is Catherine McCallum. I am the Climate Justice Campaign Director here at GetUp. And uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm going to be your host for tonight. We know that the IPCC report has dropped a week ago and that there are 3,949 pages to unpack. So no doubt you have questions. How bad is it? How long have we got? What are the big opportunities for action? What about methane gas? And how do we tackle this? So that's why we thought it was really important to come together and process the information that we're receiving and understand how as a community we can confront it, we can understand it, and we can take action together. So if you're feeling angry or confused or numb or actually determined and fired up, then you're in the right place and welcome. So Professor Will Steffen is a climate change expert, a researcher at the Australian National University in Canberra. So huge welcome, Will, and um, I'm gonna hand it over to you. And uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, I'm coming to you from Ngunnawal, Nambri country, uh, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge uh, the stewardship that uh, indigenous people have uh, carried out over this continent for at least 65,000 years. And of course, I'll be talking about how we white fellows have mucked it up in only a century or two. Um, anyway, so uh, what I'll try to do is unpack the main findings of the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report, Working Group One, which is on the basic science. Just to give you an idea of what actually goes into this, uh, the team of scientists that wrote it, over 200, uh, there were over 14,000 individual papers in the peer-reviewed literature that they had to assess. And they went through some pretty exhaustive rounds. I've been through these myself of expert and government review. Um, and they had to respond to 78,000 technical queries throughout this review process. Well, the first thing people talk about is what's happening to global average temperature. Uh, and that's the metric that a, a lot of people use uh, as a good indicator for the state of the climate system. Uh, for now, focus on that right-hand pan uh, panel. Uh, and you can see the black wavy line as the observed change uh, since 1850 when we had reliable records. And you can see over the last half century, since about 1970, an extraordinarily fast increase, accelerating increase in global average temperature. Well, just in a capsule, here are the four main findings that I would take away uh, from this report. One is the scale and pace at which we are changing the climate system has almost no precedent. And I'll return to that too. It's not just temperature, it's melting ice sheets, acidifying oceans, shifting rainfall zones, rising sea levels. What's happening now is virtually unprecedented in the 4.5 billion year history of Earth. The impacts that we're feeling are not only getting worse, they're actually accelerating. In other words, the rate at which they are occurring is itself increasing. That includes heat waves, both above ground on land and under the water, uh, bad fire weather, storms, heavy rainfall, droughts, you name it, they're getting worse. These are measured over the last decade. It is about two-thirds of that caused by CO2. So although we focus a lot on CO2, and there's a reason for that, because uh, that's a very, very long-lived gas in the atmosphere over many, many millennia. But in the short term, methane is exceptionally important. 
and it's becoming more important. Well, what's driving those emissions? Well, there are basically two primary sectors that do that. One is agriculture, and it comes mainly from uh, cattle production, but also from wet rice production. Those are the two major processes in the agricultural sector, uh, with, which emit methane. But increasingly, uh, fossil fuels are uh, uh, increasingly releasing methane to the atmosphere, primarily through a big expansion of the gas industry, um, uh, uh, where we get fugitive emissions and also leakage, uh, particularly in, in countries like Russia, which don't, do not have very good infrastructure. And as the gas industry expands, uh, methane emissions are also expanding. All right, let's look at Australia now. What is predicted for Australia out to mid-century and is pretty much baked into the system? Well, we're pretty used to heat waves, but they're going to become even more frequent and more intense. Uh, and that's both on land, the ones that we humans uh, uh, experience, but also there will be increases in marine heat waves and at the same time, ocean acidity. Ocean acidity increases because about 25% of our CO2 emissions are dissolved in the ocean. And that uh, creates carbonic acid, which is an at which uh, increases this acidity. Both of these are hammering the Great Barrier Reef. So there is no doubt whatsoever that there will be further mass bleaching events on the reef. Uh, and in my view, I think we'll be extremely fortunate to have um, even remnants of the reef uh, left uh, by 2040 or 2050. Uh, that's the result of past inaction here and around the rest of the world. So we will have to prepare for these and deal with these. But as I said before, it's absolutely essential that to stop these trends, to slow these trends and to stabilize them in the second half of the century, we have to act now. We can't wait till 2050 uh, to get going on this. Uh, well, what do we need to do globally? Well, first of all, and I emphasize this as the absolutely most important thing we must do, is that we cannot have any new fossil fuel developments of any kind. That's no coal, no oil, or no gas. So forget about a gas-led recovery. That's just, that's just crap. We have to stop all new fossil fuel developments. And then we have to phase out the existing ones as fast as we can. Globally, we need to hit at least a 50% emission reduction by 2030. Uh, and that's on a 2005 baseline. So we reckon we can and we should do better here in Australia, given our enormous renewable resources, technological capability, and the fact that we've actually been a laggard up to now. We have to do some catching up. So for us, just like the rest of the world, no new coal, coal oil, or gas developments. And again, that means no gas-led uh, recovery. We really should aim for a 75% emission reduction by 2030 on 2005 baseline. That's a huge ask. It's a big challenge, no doubt about it. But we have enormous potential to do this via renewable resources and using those to electrify other sectors of the economy. Technologically, technologically we can do it. Uh, but it's going to take an enormous effort. The decisions we make now will be the difference between a longer-term livable future for the young people or a future that is incompatible with well-functioning human societies. And the point we keep hammering is that every choice we make now, every fraction of a degree that we can avoid warming is actually important. It, it makes a difference in terms of lives, livelihoods, species, ecosystems saved. And if we want to have a future for our children and grandchildren, then strong action now is required. So the, re the really strong message coming out of this report is this probably is our last really reasonable chance to get the climate system back under some semblance of, of control. But, and I end my talks with an extremely clear and simple message. When we look at where our planet's going, how we're driving change to the planet, there is no doubt in the scientific community's mind, we are now at the fork of the road. It's not in 2030, it's now. So we have to act now if we want to have a chance of getting this under control. So that means the number one thing we need to focus on now is stopping the so-called gas-led recovery uh, and also stopping the export of coal. I should mention one thing that I'm involved in are a number of court cases where young people are taking action uh, and we've had some successes and uh, I've got another three or four on, on, uh, in the works now. So I, th I think anything we can do, whether it's demonstrations, writing to MPs, court cases, we need to stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. That, that's, um, that has to be done. Anything else, if we don't do that, isn't going to matter. We've got to stop that. So that's what I would focus all our attention on now. Um, we here in the ACT are 100% renewable now. 
and we rolled that out in nine years um, and under budget. So there are a lot of economic gains now to be to be had by going renewable. Um, the new future for energy is extremely bright. Um, so there's nothing holding us back except vested interests and political ideology. Because I talk a lot about tipping points. That's that's my area of research. But there are positive tipping points. There are social tipping points too. And we see it in other aspects in terms of gender issues, in terms of our relationship with our Indigenous colleagues. Things have changed enormously in 10 or 20 years. And they change fast because you cross a social tipping point. I think we could we can we can see a tipping point looming on the climate change issue. So anything that people do, even though you think it's small and not important, it actually is important. Tipping points are driven by multiple pressure points. There isn't going to be one big pressure point that's going to solve climate change. It's going to be multiple pressure points um, that, all throughout society. So whatever you can do is important, and it'll move us closer to that social tipping point. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Code red for humanity. That's what Antonio Gutierrez at the United Nations calls the new IPCC report. It shows that warming is out of control and hitting irreversible tipping points. It's a scientific report for policymakers, but I wish they would issue a report for dummies. I'm not saying policymakers or media people are dummies, but they are not consumed by climate change like I guess the listeners to this program are. So I've invited David Ritter who is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia, to talk to us about the report. He wrote a book called The Cold Truth, which was about the fight to reclaim our democracy. And for sure, I think uh, one of Australia's key tasks is to liberate our democracy from the influence of coal, oil and gas. So welcome, David. How are you? Hi, Vivian. I'm well, and it's great to talk with you again. It's been a while. I know. We're all locked in and can't go to conferences anymore. But look, what was your first response to the report? Well, my first response, I suppose, was one not of great surprise, because if, as you say, you are in this um, struggle all the time to get over, to get us through the climate crisis, then we knew it was going to be an incredibly serious report. But having said that, you still couldn't get past the sheer... Uh, uh, just how confronting the findings are. And, you know, in one sentence, it's that there can be no more excuses. There can be no more delays. We must act at breakneck speed to uh, slash our emissions in Australia and around the world. Well, globally, we are on a path to three degrees of warming. And I think the very first interview I ever did was with David, I uh, no, Clive Hamilton, and he had just been to a conference in London called Four Degrees of Warming. And I thought he was like someone coming back from Chernobyl. It was so horrific what he had to say. And um, But we are on that path. That's all the world can do at the moment, offering to get us to three degrees of extra heat. So what's at stake at this Glasgow conference in November? Well, you're absolutely right that, that business as usual takes us to three degrees uh, by the end of the century or significantly worse. I mean, that's there, there are scenarios that, that point us to well beyond three degrees. Um, and that's three degrees of average warming. And it means absolutely catastrophic consequences um, in terms of uh, lives lost, cities becoming unlivable, whole regions becoming unlivable, ecosystems collapsing, weather patterns collapsing, um, we are really talking about um, uh, a very, very confronting 
future for um, humanity and for all of the other species on our beautiful, beautiful planet. But the extraordinary thing about this report too is it still makes clear that there is a pathway through to a safer future for humanity that avoids that. So we don't have to take business mm. as usual. And, you know, to, to use a metaphor, uh, business as usual is the car slamming into the wall. Um, but the but we can change course. We can hit the brakes and change course. And our destiny is still within our power. And the, the Michael Mann, the distinguished US climate scientist, likes to say that, uh, yes, there is urgency, but we still have agency. So what does that mean for us in Australia? Well, it means we need to seize this clean energy opportunity moment. Um, we need to be uh, closing all of our coal burning power stations before 2030. And we need to get to net zero emissions by 2035. But the wonderful thing is, we can do all of that with a whole lot of benefits on the side. So we also improve our democracy. We also improve the quality of our air. We also deliver a whole lot of benefits for nature and for rivers and for the quality of our agriculture and for the quality of our cities. We create new jobs, a great opportunity for nation building, for bringing us together as a community, as a different kind of Australia. Mm. So while we are faced with a terrible future with business as usual, we also have the extraordinary opportunity if we change, hit the brakes, change course and accelerate. Well, look, Greenpeace says that the science is clear and Australia must act now, starting with the fossil fuel industry. And I've been thinking, you know, I think there's a delusion that's fostered very much by the media that Australia is a small player on the world scene, that we don't have big emissions compared to the global emissions. But we are a huge player in our exported emissions, which your Greenpeace response mentioned. So how would it work if we took on the fossil fuel industry to phase them out? You know, no new gas, no new coal, and then phase down the ones that are already there. Yeah, let's really deal with that misinformation. Australia is a crucial global player when it comes to climate change. We are in the top five in the world for emissions when you combine our exported emissions and our domestic emissions. We are the number one exporter of gas. We are the number one exporter of coal. And further to that, we play an outsized role in just how obstructive and destructive we are in the global climate negotiations. It is, it is such a misguided approach to our national priorities to, to take this sort of sulky, whiny, obstructive approach that you know, Morrison and Taylor aren't the first, but they're certainly now the, um, now the real uh, champions of this terrible, destructive approach to things. So, you know, all of this should be put to rest because what this, what, what Australia needs, what our country needs, what our kids need is a clear pathway to closing our domestic fossil fuel use. And we have all of the, all of the um, technical and policy solutions to do that. And then we need to wean our export away from the dirty, destructive uh, fossil fuel trade or, and already our export markets are drying up in any event. So all we're doing is anticipating where the market is going because the rest of the world is moving. And again, we need to seize that opportunity of becoming a renewable energy exporting superpower. You know, we should not be just talking about uh, getting to net zero, but becoming a 700% renewable energy exporter. Um, and again, we have the technical and policy solutions. We have the vast renewable energy resources. We have a skilled, creative uh, national population, an incredible potential workforce for renewable energy. You know, it just requires a different vision of what our country should be in the world. Yeah, I think vision's the, the good word and imagination because I think a lot of things have become unthinkable. I have a really, I've been interviewing overseas people quite a lot and I'm heartened by them because they have a much 
more flexible approach to the future, whereas I feel we're rather locked in. There's some sort of locked-in syndrome here. And I wondered what pressure would you see from other countries putting on us? Because I, I just don't see us doing it by ourselves. You know, even if elect one government, elect another government, but they're, they're both all locked in with the fossil fuel companies at the moment. And I wanted to know, will the IPCC put us lowest ranked or near the lowest, one of the lowest ranked in effective action, climate action? And it said the global benchmark was to cut emissions in half by 2030. Well, we're still going to be exporting emissions at that stage. What pressure do you see from outside on us to stop us being such a pariah? Well, look, I think... I think there are two parts to that question. And I think there is there's pressure from inside and there's pressure from outside. And, and inside Australia, let's not confuse the failure of leadership in Canberra with there being a failure of leadership in our country. Because I think we are seeing extraordinary leadership at a community level. Uh, I mean, your radio show is an is a example of great leadership. <laughs> let's, let's be clear, Vivian. Um, but um, the, the great community leadership, we see leadership in institutions, whether it's the kindergarten deciding to go to net zero, whether it's the community hospital refusing coal sponsorship. Um, we are seeing uh, leadership at a city level. We are seeing leadership in terms of developing renewables at a state level, though not always in cutting back on the, the, the uh, fossil fuel exploitation and, and digging the stuff up. And we are seeing leadership at a business level. You know, when you see Greenpeace has been running this campaign, Re-Energise, and, and that has resulted in companies like Woolworths and Coles and Bunnings, you know, Aldi, household names, uh, according to Roy Morgan, the most trusted companies in Australia, and you know they're committing to 100% renewable electricity by 2025 or sooner. Aldi said they could do it by the end of 2021, and they beat their target by six months. So whether it's whether it's the community, whether it's the the local council, the the business, we are seeing leadership in this country. We're just not seeing it at a national level, and that's the disgrace. And that is where you, you, you and I and, and many others have these conversations with folks from around the world who are just, they just cannot understand, cannot understand how you can be the prime minister of a country as beautiful as Australia, as blessed with natural renewable energy resources as Australia, but also as vulnerable to climate change as Australia and lead it in such a bewilderingly hopeless way as we are seeing from Morrison and, and Taylor and we have seen from others. And so the rest of the world is genuinely starting to put pressure on us. We've, we've now got the media reports of senior diplomats from um, our traditional allies, countries that are our traditional allies, talking about how they can get Australia to pull its weight. You know, we're being told off by the United States, the, this traditional ally of ours. I mean, can you imagine that, Vivian, a diplomatic spat because we are continuing to, to, to be so obsessed with fossil fuels. Um, and I, I think this, this deepening of pressure up to and including likely economic pressure through uh, carbon tariffs or the like will only continue to increase as climate impacts around the world worsen uh, if Australia's attitude remains as despicably intransigent as it has been. Mm. Well... You know, there's been some court cases coming up too, and the report talks about humanity being responsible. And I think the IPCC, they're quite conservative, you know, they're not going to really name companies, but I wish they would. But I think that's a bit vague. And recently, the duty of care case uh, found the Minister for the Environment did have a duty of care to future generations. It was children versus the Minister of Environment. She immediately appealed. But um, she considers a lot of, um, she has a lot of new gas and coal proposals that she could stop through the Environmental Act. And the uh, judge, Justice Bromberg, said, he said this, the inaction of this generation of adults will be the greatest intergenerational injustice ever inflicted. And I thought something in the IPCC, people remarked that attribution science has become much more precise. You can attribute cause and effect they're much better now and I wonder do you think fossil fuel companies will soon the companies not humanity but the companies will soon be held liable for damages in negligence of their emissions 
creating climate change. I think you make such an important point, Vivian. I wrote a piece recently for Arena uh, magazine um, about the um, the empire of the dead, it's the piece is called, huh? um, and it's about the way in which fossil fuel companies are at the centre of a sort of um, a system of, of power which has really malformed our democracies away from the common good. And it is not the case that climate change is, is something done by humanity. Climate change is something that is being done by a very minority economic interest to the rest of humanity, to all future generations and to nature. Now, I don't think we should slide from that clear attribution into um, feelings of hatred because I always believe that our that our um, motivation should be one of love of, of humanity and love of the, the, the extraordinary natural world um, that is our home. But I do think it means we should be oriented in this work that we know who is responsible primarily for uh, the climate emergency and it is the fossil fuel industries. And we know that that is disproportionately affecting people now and we know that future generations will bear that burden um, and by the way just as an aside we're talking about leadership what about the leadership shown by that those children who were the plaintiffs in that case and the adult who was a co-plaintiff with them and we might also just note the that leadership too um, uh, resides within the judicial role where judges are being uh, required to exercise uh, uh, their uh, role within government in a situation where the legislature and the executive are routinely failing the common good. And I think we are going to see, we already are seeing, but we are going to see an, an increase, an, an, an extraordinary increase in litigation where those who are being denied justice by the fossil fuel uh, vested interests and those who are aligned with them politically are going to be held to account. And in fact, we had um, the former Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Justice Robert French, in an address uh, just I think now two years ago himself, say that he thought, you know, this is something that we could expect in the very near future. There should be no doubt the executives and the boards of fossil fuel companies know what they are doing to humanity, to the prospects of future generations and to the natural world. Or if they don't know, then they can be reasonably expected to know. So if you look, for example, at Australia's largest climate polluter, uh, domestic climate polluter, which is the uh, company AGL, the AGL board has known about what they are doing to the world with their coal burning for many, many years. And yet, since the uh, removal of Andrew Vasey, they've had no vision, no real vision for transitioning to the point where they have increased, they've, they've barely increased all their investment in renewable energy since 2015. 85% of the electricity they produce still comes from coal. They plan to keep burning coal until 2048 and they uh, have said on the record that they do not regard themselves as being bound by the Paris Climate Goal. Now, when you are in an executive leadership situation, you are making decisions of that kind, you can expect that those who are suffering damage as a consequence of your decisions will seek recourse through the courts. Well, yeah. I remember when I heard Andy Vasey make that 2048, <laughs> just gasped. Everyone gasped. Yeah. At Paris, the world agreed to pay um, $100 billion per year to help poor countries. And I think it's now considered to be for loss and damage, they say, but we also can be helping them make the energy transition. We could even do it out of self-interest, you know, help them not emit anything. But our Pacific neighbours are very critical of us now, and we have shown no repentance on the path we're on. And... I wonder how can we get this urgent money to flow before we are overtaken by events? I think, again, we just have to um, uh, redouble pressure 
uh, on the Australian government to do the right thing. And, you know, there is a, there is a different tradition in Australia of Australia having a big-hearted view of the world, but a big-hearted view that was also associated with the more truthful view, which is that Australia is safer and more secure in a more secure and safe and prosperous world. And so when we cut our overseas development aid, which we have to historically low levels, and when we uh, pursue this short-sighted interest of continuing to burn coal, when our, um, our near neighbours in the Pacific are imploring us, imploring us to stop burning coal because it is threatening their very existence as countries, when we see some of the, the simple uh, diplomatic ignorance and incivility as we have seen in some of the incidents over the years of, of Australian politicians and the, the appalling way that they have conducted themselves in relation to counterparts in the Pacific. I mean, there, there can be no question that we need a sea change in attitudes. We need an, atti we need attitudes, an attitude that is both pragmatic in that it is the best thing for, out for Australia to do the right thing by the Pacific. And the right thing is a, uh, an appropriate level of um, finance being made available to be the, the good family member, you know, the good mm. mate, um, the, responsible, the responsible country in the world to create a pathway to future flourishing in partnership with the, the nations and communities uh, of the Pacific, um, of Southeast Asia, of the world. Yeah. The last thing is a message to the climate active community, people who campaign all the time in many different ways. Some, like Extinction Rebellion, are, you know, sticking themselves onto buildings and doing very brave action, taking on uh, jail time because they feel that they have to be visible, you know, and uh, there's many other climate actions, shareholder action and different actions. But what's your message to people like us? Because as I said before, I feel we are most mentally locked in to the feeling that it's it's too hard, that we're not achieving kind of change. And people outside Australia do say to us, well, how are you letting your government get away with what they're doing? Well, <laughs> all of us who have joined this, this great purpose in all of our own ways face the sheer challenge of having to hold with us the difficulty of the purpose, the fact that we are losing things we love on the journey, the fact that the days are long and the years are short. So I would invite everyone who is listening to also take time to reflect on all that we love that is at the foundation of why we do this and how many things that we love continue to persist in the world. And to reflect that we still have a pathway through to a safer world, to a world of future flourishing, to a world that can be built through our creation together. And to know that it is a truly extraordinary time to be alive and that none of, while none of us would choose to be here for this moment of, of this really terrible peril that is before us, that equally for all of us, what greater gift could there be than to have the opportunity to meaningfully make a difference now to countless future generations, not only of humanity, but of all species, and to know that the actions that we commit ourselves to now will be that legacy of love that can carry through the deep future of our beautiful, beautiful planet. Thank you, David. Well, we've been talking to David Ritter, who's uh, the CEO of Greenpeace Australia. And if you want to look up Greenpeace on the internet, I'm sure they've got loads of campaigns on at the moment, always have, and very persistently. Any Anything that listeners might like to join up with? 
Oh, Vivian, we would love to have it. I mean, I'm sure a bunch of the <laughs> listeners are already involved in Greenpeace. And I, you, you know this about me. I love Greenpeace. I've loved Greenpeace my whole life. Uh, anyone who's listening and who's not already involved, we would love to have you involved in the campaign with AGL or the campaign with Re-Energize or campaigning around the Pacific or some new work that we're going to be doing in Western Australia around gas. Get involved. And honestly, we'd love to have you in Greenpeace. But if Greenpeace is not your thing, then... Get involved in any of the umpteen other wonderful, wonderful, wonderful groups out there um, <laughs> or support uh, this radio show. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I just in passing, I did hear last week uh, someone talking about the Quakers and they said the Quakers had been very influential in this beginning of Greenpeace or some Quakers were involved in that. And the Quakers were also influential in getting rid of slavery. So let's yes. just keep that in mind. <laughs> thank you so much for yeah. talking to us. <laughs> a pleasure, Vivian, any time. Have a good day. You are listening to Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. We're learning about how we can act on the IPCC report. As a break from the intensity, let's listen to this song called Dreams by Josephine Baker. I'd like to pay tribute to her as she will soon be admitted to the French pantheon of national heroes. Hers will be the first black woman's name there and she is honoured by the French people for her acts of courage in the French resistance. She was also active with Martin Luther King for civil rights, and she was a queer icon. I think if she was alive today, she'd maybe be out there with Extinction Rebellion or Get Up or Greenpeace, using her wits to defeat the grim profiteering of our time. Apparently in occupied France, she left messages for the resistance underneath posters for her concerts. So let's dream a while with Josephine Baker. Oh, 
Extinction Rebellion caught the headlines in Canberra recently. These are the headlines from Murdoch Press. No flaming idea of the real carbon criminals. And then, bonfire of inanity. Senator Matt Canavan says they should have protested at the Chinese embassy, the biggest emitter in the world. So do you see there the deflection, deflecting from Australia being a big emitter, deflecting from who we are, the carbon criminals. It's, it's really deliberate and um, you'd hate to be so gullible as to accept it, but a lot of people must be. There was also, um, from the Sydney Criminal Lawyers, an article called Hell on Earth. Extinction Rebellion on the Urgency of Climate Activism. And I can recommend that article. The IPCC report is not news to the Extinction Rebellion people. When Justice Bromberg found that the Minister for the Environment had a duty of care to children, she appealed. This made the Extinction Rebellion people wild, I would say. It's very strategic how they take action it has to be dramatic, it has to get the media attention, but it highlighted this very immoral thing. I do not have a duty of care. Yes, you do. You're the Minister for the Environment. We're depending on you. So here are the rather dry words of Justice Bromberg, which however show that IPCC of evidence is being used in court. Justice Bromberg. The evidence was largely based on the climate change modelling of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and more recent assessments made by Professor William Steffen, an eminent specialist in climate science. The Paris Agreement target of limiting global average surface temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius with the ambition to limit temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level is now unlikely to be achieved without significant overshoot. If the global average surface temperature increases beyond two degrees Celsius, there is a risk ranging from very small at about two degrees Celsius to very substantial at about three degrees Celsius that the Earth's natural systems will propel global surface temperatures into an irreversible four degrees Celsius trajectory, those potential harms may fairly be described as catastrophic. Now let's hear from some of the Extinction Rebellion people when they were released from jail. One of them is a 77 year old environmental scientist. G'day. My name's Mark and on the 10th of August, I, along with several other Extinction Rebellion members, undertook some actions at the Parliament House and at the Lodge. I personally spray-painted duty of care on the Prime Minister's residence. I was arrested after this and I've just come out from spending a week in the Alexander McConaughey Centre, the prison here in Canberra, on remand. I can't lie, prison is a confronting and difficult experience but I'm glad that I had my friends there to go through it with me. It's a privilege that we have to be able to go into prison and get out again so quickly, being able to sign bail papers. It is a difficult and confronting place to be. It is full of rough people who life has treated roughly. Discrimination is rife and the mundanity is crushing. But I can also say that we have come out relatively unharmed and unscathed. And I can also say that I would do what I did again in an instant because we are in a climate and ecological emergency. Our government is failing to protect us and is indeed driving us to our destruction. And if we do not take the most radical action now, then we face the collapse of everything. Hi everyone, I'm Leslie. Um, as much, some of you may know, I've already been into prison once and I went in again this time after doing what felt like two months of actions, but apparently it was only a couple of weeks. We did some fantastic stuff. We learnt so much. We have made more of an impact than I ever dreamed we would, particularly with our last action. And this has a real sense of turning a corner. We know the direction that we have to go in now to get the attention of the media and to get the attention of the politicians. And we know 
the going to prison strategy has been controversial in our movement and certainly outside of it. Um, someone's got a better idea, I'm all up for that. Um, prison wasn't as easy as it was when it was just Violet and I the first time. I don't know if they were deliberately trying to t teach us a lesson, but it was doable. We've, um, we've done what we had to do. We don't have time to do the reformist stuff. We don't have time to let the politicians work this out. We know that, you know, there's no doubt after the last IPCC report. So um, we have to take radical action and uh, this is the best plan we've got so far. Um, and I'll be going back. We have just completed, we're in the process of completing our second wave when our other two brave rebels come out. We've shown this can be done. We have shown men can go into this prison that we know how to prepare people better now for what they're going to face when they're in there. They're, they weren't um, mollycoddling us this time. We got the full prison experience. Um, we can help people understand that. So we've done what we can do. We're going to keep going, all of us, I think. we, All of us who've been in have decided that this is something we will continue to do. If a lot of you don't join us, it's not going to work. We always know civil disobedience is about the numbers and we are only going, you know, we're going to become yesterday's news if we just keep going in in dribs and drabs. So for anybody who out there who thinks this might be possible, we're running lots of Zoom information sessions, stay tuned to the signal chats and Facebook pages and things like that um, and get involved, find out if you can be a supporter or if you can come to prison because we need to do this in numbers, folks. We don't have time. We just don't have time to fuck around anymore. I'm sorry, we just have to do this. So thanks for um, listening to us and our stories. I'm Nick. I'm 77 years old and I'm a grandfather of seven children. I've been an environmental scientist for 50 years. And during that time, I've contributed as much as I can to better understanding of climate change and adaptation. I work for CSIRO. I'm now an honorary associate professor at the ANU, and I continue to do that work. But most of my time, I realize, should be spent on trying to change the way government responds to climate change, because they're not responding at all. They're not, they're not responsible. They don't believe they're responsible. Susan Lay, our environment minister, is trying to get is challenging the decision by a judge that, 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 that the Australian government does have a duty of care to our children. So no more research for me. Before I die, and I won't be around for much longer at my age, I'm going to do as much as I can to, to, take, to, to, to take responsibility for the future that our generation has created and change it so that the future of the planet becomes hopeful as it could easily be. We know how to do things much better, and we know how to stop doing the things we're now doing. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems, and now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know? I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's gonna be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. These are really grim times. Professor David Caroli addressed the Climactic Collective the other night 
and the news is appalling, really appalling. We'll come back to that in future shows. But meanwhile, thank you to David Ritter, CEO of Greenpeace, to GetUp and Professor Will Steffen of the Climate Council, to the Extinction Rebellion rebels in Canberra and all those who helped me get their voices to you. And thanks to Richard Dennis and uh, the um, for his article in Feeling the Heat in the Australian Journal of Foreign Affairs. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Action this week. You heard from many groups tonight, but I think one that one action that is very easy and appealing to many people is to join up with GetUp. Just go to their website and join the Code Red Climate Blitz. Each week on the way to Glasgow, that's 10 weeks from now, you will receive text messages for action. This will be to let our government know we want them to represent us and future generations and not the profits of polluters. And now, some breaking news. The Extinction Rebels you heard tonight, after they were let out of jail, were actually fined $20 each. The headline in the Murdoch paper called the Daily Telegraph in Sydney was Justice Extinct! Rebellion Vandals Handed $20 Fines for Climate Graffiti. Full story, page 11. And there was a little inset. We'll keep going. Lefty louts vow more trouble. And now, here's some bonus material from Richard Dennis at the Australia Institute webinar. So let's cast our minds back to, you know, Paris uh, in, uh, in, in 2015, uh, or Australia in 2015, in the lead-up to Paris. Uh, Australia at the time is saying, oh, yes, got to tackle climate change. Sure, Tony Abbott's here, but, you know, we, we, we're doing our bit. Since Paris, Australia has, has opened up what is now the largest LNG, liquefied natural gas export industry in the world. We spent $60 billion, $60,000 million investing in export facilities so that we could suck enormous amounts of fracked gas and, and ship it overseas. We made these investments. We opened up this industry after Paris. Uh, I was at the Paris Climate Talks. Australia Institute was talking about the Adani coal mine internationally back then, saying to people, hey, you know, Australia wants to build the world's largest coal mine and people, you know, couldn't really get their heads around it. Well, six years later, guess what? Australia now, New South Wales alone, wants to open 23 new coal mines, right? This is happening right now. We're still exploring for oil. So uh, it's important to understand that Australia got away with this kind of double game by doing the oldest trick in the political book. So sort of agree with something in principle while ignoring it in practice. So for decades, Australia has agreed in principle that the world should reduce emissions. But think about what we just said. Someone else should do something. So we've always agreed that the world should reduce emissions, but we don't think the world should burn less coal. And we don't think the world should burn less oil. And we don't think the world should burn less gas. But we do agree that the world should emit less. So what's happened in the last six years is that uh, the Pacific Island nations, for example, have really got behind the Australia Institute's call for a moratorium on building new coal mines. And all of a sudden, Australia has been put on the back foot because when the Pacific used to say, we want Australia to be more ambitious, Australia would say, oh, we promise to be more ambitious. What in? Oh, the abstract idea that someone else should reduce emissions. But now we've got first Pacific Island nations, now European countries saying to us, why are you building new coal mines? And now that the debate has become specific 
about Australia's plans to produce more fossil fuels rather than abstract promises to reduce emissions, Australia's got nowhere to hide. And that's why the pressure is getting so, so big. But now that the debate is moving from the abstract notion of emissions into concrete things uh, like uh, are you building new coal, are you building new gas, it's so much harder to hide a coal mine under an accounting trick than it is to hide the fact that, it, let's be crystal clear, Australia's greenhouse gas emissions from energy, transport and industry are rising. They're not falling. We're not transitioning to zero 